0: You have heard of the Manning cast? Well, I would like to welcome you to the Gallo cast. The Gallo cast is two of the top brothers in compliance, Nick and Geo Gallo, talking compliance. In this podcast series, we bring them together for a free form exploration of compliance topics. It's great insights brought to you from the Co-CEOs of Compliance Line. Fun, witty, insightful, with a dash of the two brothers throughout. I know you'll enjoy the GalloCast. The GalloCast is a production of the award-winning Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back with Gio and Nick Gallo for another episode of GalloCast. Yes, this is the Brothers Gallo riffing on all things compliance. I'm going to try to stay out of their way as best I can. So, gents, first of all, welcome back.
1: Already. Right off the jump, he's
2: staying out of our way. <laughs> all right, cool. Let's get it going.
0: Let's get it going. All okay, right. I want to start off with the one from the world of sports. That's the Deshaun Watson appeal. As uh, most of our listeners We'll note Watson was suspended or recommended suspension of six games by an impartial arbitrator. Umpire, the NFL objected to that. They want a full season or more, and it's going now to another third party for adjudication. So what we've got here, guys, is basically a a retired judge who says, here were the rules, here were the policies and procedures, and if you violated those, here's the fine or penalty you were going to get. And that's what she gave the max six games. No fine. NFL says no in light of additional information, a in light of the severity of the totality of the conduct and in the response to the people who alleged he allegedly assaulted, although, albeit in a nonviolent way, we want a full year. So is there a right or wrong here?
2: What I love about this issue, Tom, is that it brings. Obviously, it's a huge tragedy, but just the question about what do you follow for the for the enforcement brings in all of these stakeholders that are part of this decision, which really makes this an interesting thing to be a, a discussion or something that a compliance officer would handle. This is not so simple as compliance 1.0. What does the law say and what will you get sued for and what are the maximum penalties that are written by legislators? Part of the reason this is a thing is because the NFL is looking at their precedent and their players and the union and the other employees that are not part of the players union that that are part of the NFL and all of the public opinion and all of that, I think, in the context of a changing and hopefully maturing stance on how much you want to stand against assault on women. So it's obviously complex. I think that the, the answer is it depends on how the NFL wants to balance their loyalty and their interest, because there are so many conflicting interests here.
1: And I guess if you're going to get down to that sort of pragmatic piece of the puzzle, the NFL will either have to take an economic or a sort of, I don't know, altruistic approach to this thing. If they want to change their rules based on public opinion then, you know, it's their prerogative to do that. And I think what they're going to run the risk of doing, though, is what a lot of uh, what our good friend Allison Taylor has talked about with respect to companies in the ESG realm. And what she's talked about is, like, you can't half-ass your way through it. So if you're going to take a stand, you have to take a stand and be internally consistent. And if you're not, then don't, but just pick and choose the battles that you're going to fight. I have heard a lot of noise around the NFL recently about how they are pushing things in a direction that maybe is not in line with what the average NFL fan cares about. If that's one of those things, they need to make that decision on what they're going to pri- prioritize. I think it's it's obviously an interesting situation given the fact that 23 of these have been settled. There's this one outstanding one and how that sort of nonviolent sexual assault, which I'm still not even really sure what that means. I didn't know that there's different flavors of sexual assault. But I guess wh- what that means relative to the precedents that have been set for fines, penalties, whatever, that have been applied to violent sexual assault. So look, the social mores are going to continue to change. They've changed throughout your lifetime. They've changed throughout my lifetime. They're going to change throughout my kid's lifetime. And so that's not very few of these things that that we think are etched in stone are actually etched in stone. It's a lot more undulating of a surface than we think.
2: So I think one interesting thing here is, I don't know if it's obvious, but at least you could imply that the NFL's estimation of how bad sexual assault is has changed since this precedent was set and if they were to next to Nick's point if they were really serious about it and on top of it they could have avoided this whole thing by saying hey I know what the precedent is but here's what it is any sexual assault automatic two and a half year suspension or whatever it is they could have said that ahead of time and now they're stuck in the middle of this thing which quite frankly makes it look like They're just replying to some social pressure instead of like a stance that comes from the heart of their values. But they're saying, oh, yeah, we didn't really we have this precedent. We didn't change the standard, but now we're trying to change it in the middle of it. And that just speaks to how important it is for us as leaders to say, hey, are we are we going to behave the same way we did last time when this happens again and so many times unfortunately it's not an if whether it happens but when it happens i think it's just interesting that they could have avoided this whole thing to get down to it tom i think that the least resistance path here which doesn't mean it's the most moral or even the best way to guide the the league forward the least resistance path is probably you object to it you appeal it you stick with the six months, and then you say, oh, we're never going to do that again, and then you set a new standard. And some people are going to think that's compromising. That's probably one good way to balance these different considerations. If nothing else, at least they're, uh, whether they're responding to pressure or responding to their own values, trying to stand up for women more and stand less for allowing this these crimes to be perpetrated by people in the league. Another way to talk about it is if you're really serious about it and you hate it so much, just throw
1: them <laughs> out of the league forever. How about that?
2: Yeah, no matter so the consequences, stand against it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. If you're going to stand, if you're going to stand for it, what's wrong with the zero tolerance response to it? If
2: it's absolutely Nick. But remember, this is Nick. Let's take it easy. This is nonviolent sexual assault. It's not even it's not even violent sexual assault. So, (laughs) you know, joking, kidding, asterisk. All right.
0: Let me change the focus a little bit because Matt Kelly and I have debated this for the last few podcasts, and that's the following. Under the new DOJ requirement for CCOs to certify at the end of compliance monitorships or DPAs, they have to certify that a program is reasonably designed to prevent bribery and corruption. And Matt has focused on the word reasonably, that he doesn't believe that gives enough definition to what a CCO really has to certify to. Because I'm a recovering trial lawyer, I tried a lot of cases where the standard was the reasonable person standard. I'm very comfortable with asking six people, 12 people, or any group of people or individual person what's reasonable under the circumstances. But I wanted to pitch that to you guys. Do you think that a reasonably designed program is enough of a standard, or would you like to see more definition around that, at least from the regulators in the form of the DOJ?
1: I love it. I love that kind of a definition. (laughs) I think it's uh, like you, Tom. um, I think it allows for a situation differences it allow it's a sort of an it, it's an all encompassing type of a term that a lot of different situations can can fit under and if reasonable is a the average answer from 12 people or something like that then great you can find that by specialists in a particular field or at a particular organization size or whatever. I think going to the other side and moving away from quote unquote reasonable to something that's like more articulated, leads to an over-reliance on the words on the page. And it's never gonna just, this is my sort of way I think the world works, which I think is right, is that you're never gonna be able to keep up. You're never gonna be able to keep up with all the changes and all the different situations and all the budgetary constraints and all the different jurisdictions that a company is gonna be in and, and so forth. That leads to another sort of thing, though. Who's going to sign that? <laughs> but Gio, what
2: do you think about it? I I just, I can't say I'm surprised by it, Nick, but I, I just can't believe you would say something like that. This is an <laughs> affront to all of compliance. Come on, let's get a debate going here. So a problem with this is, yeah, who's going to sign off on it? A lot of ambiguity. It feels like yet another thing that the regulators are saying, all right, make sure everything's good, but also we're not going to define good to you. And it's putting all of this on compliance officers. Is this going to lead to, where is this going to go wrong? A compliance officer not certifying it and saying, I don't know, I mean, give me another $5 million a year on the compliance program, then I'll call it reasonable. I'm not going to put it on my head. I didn't even get the approval for 80% of the things that I asked for here. And then, oh, if you don't sign it, then you're fired. And then all of that, it leaves so much room, which I think there's moral hazard in it. There, It's putting a bunch of pressure on the compliance department to meet this unforeseen standard. And ultimately, it's probably going to rely on poor compliance programs when there's not some clear guidance given. So what I'm going to vote for here is do away with this terrible standard that's just burying compliance leaders under an unknown burden that they can never really fully sign off on. And I would say at least define it one more layer. At least say reasonable according to whom. So I know that the trial lawyers would rather have that. Hey, I could probably pick a jury that would say yes to this, but is it reasonable according to CEOs? Because I bet a CEO would say, yeah, we got posters and I got we got at least a three-page policy. We have a reasonable compliance program. So reasonable to CEOs? Fine. If it's all CEOs who have to say it's a reasonable program, then maybe everyone's going to sign off on it. Is it reasonable to uh, a layman? hey, we spent $600,000 just on our compliance program last year. And someone who makes 45 grand a year is going to be like, that sounds like a ton of money. You must have it completely covered. Never mind that we're like a $85 billion company or something. So who is it defined by? I think it would be interesting. How about this? According to compliance officers and let them all debate, hey, you didn't do enough. No, you should have been better.
1: It would need to be reasonable compliance officers.
2: (laughs) Okay. Yeah, let's do that.
1: Okay. But a lot of what you just
2: described is the reality for compliance folks as it is. I know. Why are we they making it know. harder on them? These are, these, these are the salt of the earth people. These are the best people you got in your whole organization, and you're going to make it harder on them by, by stacking layers and exponents of uncertainty on top of them? Let us do our job and let us help the organization instead of making some fake standard for us. My goodness.
0: Let me maybe draw upon your business backgrounds <laughs> a little bit with the next topic, which is documentation. And exceptions. And there's a, often a debate around internal controls. Can you have an override for an internal control? My answer is you can always have an override if there's an appropriate justification, business justification, and that justification is documented. And, and many companies get in trouble when they have a program, policy, procedure, or control that's not followed, but there's no business justification. So I wanted to really ask you guys from your business perspective, if you have a process and procedure, can you have an exception to that? If you do have an exception, what would you advocate how you articulate that exception and should it put in writing if someone is later going to evaluate your exception? Or if you have a policy and procedure and you have so many exceptions that the policy and procedure turns out to to be the exception, do you need to revise your policy and procedure?
1: Yeah, that's a really great question. My last answer is a preview for this answer because I'm the exceptions guy. I just think any exceptions are probably allowed as long as they're reasonable or as long as they make sense. If that same kind of like flexible definition and I've run into some challenges recently on our team where we have this is not like compliance policies, but it's the same essence, the same spirit of what we're talking about, where we have a rule about who can go after a particular lead or whose sale is it or who's or something like that. And there's so many there's so many exceptions to the line in the sand. It's not even like a line anymore. And it provides like a real, real frustration for people when they feel like these rules that they should be able to hang their hat on, so to speak. They don't even really exist. So I think. um the best rule is going to be able the best rule is going to be able to count for every single permutation, and that really boils down to a principle which is not really a luxury that we can usually afford ourselves consistently across all the sort of complexities that are involved in business. Your question, Tom, was what no I'm kidding I think to the extent that there are like exceptions, I think we should in theory be able to point to why those exceptions are common sense, and once there's enough an once there's enough accumulation of those sort of data points that are outside of the confines of the particular rule, then those can sometimes serve as serve to inform how that rule or how that policy should change. Again, I'm obviously talking about not things that are sort of like illegal or whatever, but I think in general, like everything's written in pencil, whether we like it or not, because business changes so much, because acquisitions happen, because new challenges come up, and things that are unforeseen come up. So I think. As our policies and procedures morph over time, we need to, at least at a core level, be able to maintain credibility with the people that are meant to adhere to these policies with a logical path of like reasonableness. There's that word again, a logical path of reasonableness toward whatever's in place.
2: Yeah. So on this, I think we all have to realize that our policies need to be written to contemplate exceptions. Again, you know. Barring anything very clearly defined and completely objective, we, our policies need to cover most situations and know that there's some stuff that's going to fall outside of this unless, unless you want to make it really hard line. But part of the challenge, there are two challenges to making a different type of policy that is meant to cover everything so that you never have to ask for an ex- exception. One is it's overly hard to draft because you have to anticipate all the different things that it involves and you have to put all this yep. effort into writing the policy in the first place and the second one is no one's gonna bloody read it. no one's gonna read through right. all of the 87 branches of logic of unless you're less you've been here for less than two months and you've only completed half of your training in that case you'll only be fine two PTO days until you get to this point you you can't possibly script all of that So I think what we need to do is, Anticipate that there are going to be some things that are related to a policy that we haven't anticipated or didn't want to script every time, and leave it up to the worthy discretion of a responsible person who's part of the organization. So, in that case, I think what you propose, Tom, is that it should be documented. I think that's a good standard of hey, you know, there's nothing in the policy for what we do. When you know, a pregnant employee is caught in a rainstorm and their car just broke down and their kids are alone and they need to get dinner, I just bought her a cab and I expensed it on the company. That's not part of the expense policy, but I thought that was reasonable. I don't know, whatever it is. You have to leave room for that and then you can audit it or review it or whatever. I think that auditing thing becomes tough because I think the legal concern about can I make this exception to this policy is what if someone a search discrimination because I didn't make the same exact exception for them or something. You have to be able to manage around that. It's hard. I don't know any policy management systems that are auditing and comparing all historical exceptions documented around something. But I think at some point we have to understand that as compliance leaders, we can't lock down every decision that everyone makes. And there's greater cost to that restriction than there is to having some flexibility and kind of dealing with things that kind of fall outside of whatever you could fit into a one-page policy.
0: Let me ask you guys about transparency. Let me preface that, that word with a couple of thoughts. One Gio, early on when you were early on in your compliance line career, I saw multiple videos that you did around leadership and your leadership style and what you're trying to impart to your employees. And you really emphasized transparency as a leader. Nick, I've heard you talk about transparency in the context of servant leadership. We had an ethics verse presentation today that we'll get into in a little bit where you also talked about transparency. But I wanted to ask you about the need for a leader to be transparent In the context of something else you talked about this morning, I think, Nick, actually, I think, Gio, you brought it up, which was employee uh, acquisition and retention. And you both spoke to the need for compliance to understand not simply the cost of bringing new employees on, but the cost of losing employees and how important that be, what a loss that could be, not just for dollars, but for institutional knowledge, for the Yoda factor, for continuity, for a variety of other reasons. So I was wondering if you guys could talk about leadership transparency, but really in the employment arena, as opposed to perhaps the compliance or other arena.
2: Yeah, so I I just think it's key and it's only becoming more essential as our economy and our culture kind of shifts toward more employee empowerment. At the end of the day, transparency is about just being clear about reality. And we, around here at Compliance Line, we say reality is our friend. And if I think that by hiding the fact that some employees are concerned about this thing, it's going to make no one else concerned about it. It's probably just going to fester. It's probably going to, you're probably going to lose track of the narrative. And ultimately, employees know whether you're being clear and honest with them. You can be not transparent in two ways by obfuscating the truth or ignoring the topic and i think that the more you can av- avoid doing both of those things and bring bringing up the elephant in the room and being how about this how about be more transparent than your employees are and say hey this might not be an issue but i want to talk about it in case that it, in case it is how does it, It's easy for us to look at, through that as, of the lens of, what's the litigation risk of being transparent? Or what's the cost of us spending more time talking about this thing? The lurking cost behind not doing it right is that employee engagement or disengagement. It's that turnover. And it, it's somebody saying, hey, you know what? I can't even see the grass on the other side of the fence. I have no idea whether it's brown or super lush and green, or it looks like a golf course. I don't even know what the grass is like behind this application that I just saw posted, but I'm going to jump over there because there's got to be something better in my life or for my life than this. That's what you leave yourself up to. You let, you know, it's part of the transparency thing. If you're transparent and you're talking about what happened and what you think is going to happen and how you plan to react to it, then you're not leaving it up to the employees to make their own narrative and be building their own story without your involvement. If you get involved in that by being transparent, leading with being an example to your employees about... How about you as a leader, speak up to them about the things they care about and say, hey, there are things you know about that I care about that I'd like you to speak up about. How about you model that for them? If you don't do that, they don't even have to see the grass on the other side of the fence. They'll just be like, I'm just going to go try something else because, hey, could it even be worse? Yeah, I think he's right. Great job, Gio. Thanks. I mean, <laughs> like
1: the transparency thing is either do it because it's more human and it's the right thing to do or again to go on the other side of the spectrum if you're like a straight up narcissist do it because you're going to get more out of people from it because everybody wants to feel connected and plugged in we're not this is not 1890 us working in an industrial revolution era machine shop everyone's working in a Knowledge, work, economy, we are our work. I talk about this all the time. The great resignation and, the, and COVID especially has shown that like this barrier between our work life and our home life doesn't exist. And we wanna follow, it's in all the data. We talked about it on the Ethicsverse web- webinar today. People are quitting their jobs in droves because they don't believe in the mission of the organization. Cut that against, balance that against the old adage that people don't quit companies, they quit their managers. It's because they don't believe that their managers are pursuing the organization and the manager is not living those values. What's the easiest to think about... Think about the people you're close with. They're transparent with you to some degree, at least enough for you to have an authentic connection with them about what they're good at, what they're not good at, what you're good at, what you're not good at. There's a certain sort of safety in that we try to sterilize out of our workplaces and then we wonder why nobody gives us their heart. They're gonna give you their heart if they feel connected to you as a leader. And this translates from a corporate level of an organization that's able to bottle what I'm saying and spray it across their organization, but it also happens on the micro level where leaders of teams, compliance leaders, whatever, Anybody who has a team of people working with them, that authentic connection is going to be the key to get that outsized engagement. And you know what? Like, it's it's sometimes I feel super cringy when I'm sharing transparency. When I'm trying to be transparency, I can't even say it. When I'm trying to be transparent about something I've dropped the ball on, or sharing feedback, negative feedback that I've gotten in an employee survey that's about me, sharing that with my team. That's not like. That's not like fun for my ego. You know what I'm saying? That's not fun for my self-image. But at the same time, like reality is our friend, right? So if we're and we're also none of us are like the Uberman, the uh, not the driver, but like the the apex actualized, fully actualized human being. The Uberman. There's, devel- there's more development that we all have to do. So obviously, there's room for improvement, is the point. But sometimes that being public is hard. But my point is, once you do that a couple of times and you make that kind of a thing, which is what we try to do, and it is like highly painful for people in our organization like how like crazy transparent we are about feedback good or bad whatever we put it on the walls people are like have fits about it it's like all right this is the reality of it so reality is our friend and we have to hold on to this sort of i don't know what else to call it but just like almost like psychotic transparency otherwise we're going to turn into an opaque organization like everybody else that litters the the economy
0: we had a major whistleblower award announced this week of 14 million uh, was, I believe, one third of the total fine and penalty. So that means it's over 42 million at least. And it really gave me pause to think about certainly you have a cost on fine and penalty. But I had one friend who's gone through two FCPA enforcement actions who explained to me your fine and penalty is the overall cost rather is two to six times your fine and penalty. You talked about that today sure. in the ethics first wow. presentation a little bit about in the context of litigation costs. Because even if you settle a case, even if you determine a case has no merit, you still have to investigate it. And you may have to go to trial. Yep. You may have to pay someone like myself to try a case. You may lose. You may have to appeal. And then you may have a, some other sanction put on you that you have to remediate. So I wanted to maybe ask that in the context of do companies, do your clients understand when you sit down and talk to them about hard cost savings, do they understand that the final penalty is actually a small part of the overall cost? And I should add one more, which is even more, probably the biggest. The same friend who's gone through the two investigations said the biggest cost was the time. It took senior management fully 25% of their time was focused on the investigation and then the remediation. And so that took them 25% of their time from doing business. How do you, when you have those conversations that people understand that the fine and penalty is just a part or even a small part of the overall cost?
1: I don't know. There's they no idea. I, yeah. I think they get super myopic and almost like naturalistic about it of whatever they can touch and identify, but you're talking about executive time. Think about that. Just think about that. These executives are getting paid that is like in theory for the economy to work and for bottom lines to increase there's some sort of like return and there's some magnification of that cost that the company is expending there's some positive roi is my point to that person's salary so it's not just 25 percent of their salary it's actually whatever the normal return of their time is less less 25 percent you understand what i'm saying there's a multiplicative effect of that and nobody but it's always like it's always however many like tiers out from that, that, that core of easily identifiable cost. Those costs are always like exponentially bigger, but they almost float off into the ether because they're like a little bit harder to quantify. But that's to your point where like the massive cost is and that people don't think about.
2: Yeah, if you're not using this line of reasoning to make your ROI case, you're not just missing out on an opportunity. You're not doing your job. Yeah, and I don't, I don't want to be too rough here, but you're just being lazy if you're just stopping at the fine cost. And I'm trying to push here so that you can conceive of this a little bit differently, but it's not inappropriate for you to include the cost of potential enforcement, the executive time and their billing rate or whatever their salary rate per hour is. It's also not outside reason to say, hey, you know what? That CEO was spending time going through this hearing or this ruling or this remediation instead of building the next $100 million of revenue or doing the next acquisition or whatever it is. So we're not just giving up his time to Nick's point. We're giving up what could have been done with his or her time somewhere else and all the time that the compliance team was working on that instead of something else and all of those things. You have to stack those up. It's not just an option. It's not just something really cool and fancy to do to put the actual full burden of these bad actions into your ROI case. It's your duty. It's what your job is. Our job as ethics experts is not just to run programs, not just to write policies. Our job is to have an impact. And sometimes the path toward toward that impact is understanding the full burden of how bad it is when things mess up and things are a lot worse than the check that you have to cut to the SEC. You got to do it. You just have to do it. You have to figure out how to do it. Hire a coach, talk to a friend, go to a conference, take a finance course on LinkedIn, figure out what you need to do, because if you're not doing it, not only is your career not going to advance as quickly, not only is your company and your team going to be overburdened, also employees' lives are not going to be made better until we, as compliance leaders, put in front of the face of the CFO and the board and everyone else, the true cost of of unethical behavior, and it's so much bigger than the fine.
0: That's an absolute yep. conversation changer. We're gonna we're gonna keep going on that one at some point. Let's yeah, talk let's about Taiwan, and perhaps in a little bit different way, which is after the or before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I don't think many compliance professionals really had geographics as a key risk factor. Certainly, there are areas that were known for corruption, or they're known for climate risk, or other things but when russia invaded ukraine we had a dramatic change in risk profiles and that surprised a lot of people there can be no surprise about taiwan now china has made its intentions clear how would you suggest or how would you counsel a, a compliance officer or a risk officer to think about a situation where we may actually have a if not a shooting war an invasion certainly a, a strong economic sanctions by mainland china Against Taiwan, all the way from risk insurance down to how do we get our semiconductors out? Or would you advocate having those discussions now?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. You got to plan for the likely outcome. We were talking about expected value thinking, and you can draw. A little decision tree to say we are here and here are a couple of d- different outcomes we used to do this all the time in private equity but we would talk about a few different outcomes and we would crowdsource it across the team to say there are three different outcomes what do you think the odds of each one of these occurring are and from that you can get a pretty good sense of okay everybody thinks that it's going to this is going to escalate further whatever and you can start to get see ahead of the curve or see around the curve as joe says a little bit look you and the three of us could probably do this with a two-point decision tree now and i would say that there's more than a 50% chance that 10 years from now, this is not, China hasn't said, ah, forget it. Ah, go ahead. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's probably going to get, it's going to escalate further and further. And so I think planning for that and getting some clues from what we saw in in the Ukraine, for example, uh, can probably help us be a little bit more effective and not ultimately get caught on our heels. Look, if something pops off, we're all going to be on our heels a little bit. We're going to be in reactionary mode and there's going to be implications and sanctions and stuff like that. Our perhaps going to be outside of what we thought would happen and, and, and so forth. But the more you can do to prep for something like that within within reason, I think is smart. Yeah, I think he studied
2: in, in, in China, so he might have a better perspective. I have a better perspective on how to bargain in the streets of Mong Kong. I think you have to be planning for it. And to use that expected value approach, there may be, call it three outcomes. It stays where it's at. The Concern or the risk completely goes away or it gets a lot worse. Do you want to react to that or do you want to prep for it? And if you want to prep for it and you think, hey, you know what? It's my job to not just deal with you know, regulatory risks once they're there, but to help the company prepare for business risks and things that are going to impact our company and our ability to serve our customers or to fill our vision. Then I think you start thinking and planning around this and saying, hey, you know what? I know there's not a policy about this and I'm not reacting to a someone being on the SDN list, but we should start diversifying our supply chain so we don't get caught upside down yep. or caught on our back foot if something like this changes. And you know what? I think we probably have two to five years. I'm not guessing that's going to happen in two months, but we should probably be ready in a year or two for something like that. Then you start having the conversation. And I think that depending on the scale of your organization, you can assess How risky that is, right? If it goes bad and you can't get any product out of Taiwan or whatever, how bad is that for you? Is that 10% of your supply chain or 100%? Does that mean that you can't sell anything for a quarter or it just takes a little bit longer? But I think you can start, I think that this is part of the next frontier and some people are already leading the way into this of not just reacting to existing regulations and risks, but saying, hey, we should plan around the curve for this potential crisis. And I think those are the types of things that we as compliance leaders should be learning from things that we've seen and say, hey, you know what? 30 years ago, this probably was not in a compliance course at university to figure out how to deal with invasions and how they affect the global right. supply chain of silicon. But I shouldn't need a course for that. I Let me see if I could spend a little bit of time seeing if we can change our stance on this and be incrementally better each quarter in preparing. Uh, for
0: let me pick up on a point both of you all have talked about, but you articulated it most recently in this podcast, Nick, and that's about risk forecasting and risk management. And we can take a variety of topics. I was going to pick climate change as a compliance risk. And then, Gio, it really struck me when you were talking about, hey, let's reframe our conversation around what are the true costs How do we get compliance professionals, someone like myself, perhaps legally, as opposed to you guys with a much more quantitative and business background, to start thinking about these risks in a much more holistic basis? Hey, I went to China. The first time I went to China 20 years ago, it was clear to me China's long-term strategy was to take over Taiwan. I didn't think it would happen in my lifetime, but it's probably they'll make a move. Here we are 20 years later and whether it's climate change, whether it's hurricanes, whether it's a potential invasion of another country, how do you get compliance professionals to start thinking about different types of risk? And I don't want to say you have to model it out like a super forecaster, but to have some something in mind that we can respond, or we have the tools in place if the U.S. government starts delivering sanctions like we saw after the Russian invasion in UK. Ukraine. How do we Get that conversation going in the compliance community to look at risk broader than simply corruption, money laundering, and export control.
1: So I think a, we can draw a corollary to this concept, and I think it's a picture of the type of a mentality shift that we need to achieve what you suggest, Tom. So in, there's this difference between accounting cost and economic cost. And so accounting costs are the dollars and cents and economic costs. This is some of the stuff that we referred to before. That's like the opportunity cost. So when we were talking about the fines and stuff, like the accounting cost, that's the dollars and cents, the straight dollars and cents of it. But the full economic cost in- incorporates the return that those executives who are 25% pulled you know their mind towards this other stuff, this nonproductive stuff, it incorporates the cost of what they could have generated. Had they been doing something else? It's that opportunity cost thinking. So I think when we can start extending our mentality beyond just the basic checks and ticks and boxes and policies and sanctions and things like that to these broader things like you're you're talking about whether it's climate change, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's supply chain changes due to the Taiwan situation, we can start to look at this at this diorama from a bit of a different angle. And we can start to think about how can we get ahead of the curve? And how can I anticipate some of these distraction costs or scrambling costs or me caught on my heels costs? How can I curtail some of those by thinking ahead a little bit? Something as big as climate change, again, to your point, I think it's a big problem. It's a global thing that very few companies can impact in a material way themselves. However, we can anticipate where things are going and we can anticipate the direction of the winds of regulation, the winds of the government, so to speak, and start to do things to get out ahead of the curve. We can't see the future, but we can see around the curve by anticipating and taking reasonable steps, I think, to build structures that prevent us from being caught on our heels.
2: Yeah, I would just, I think that anything like this, you should borrow something from this concept of atomic habits and you have to stack this onto things that you're already doing. If you see this new form of risk as this completely new thing, and I have to get a new person on my team to think about these new types of risk, and it's got to be its own thing. Not only is that going to be a bunch of effort that's probably going to keep you from getting started as quickly as you should, but it's probably not going to be integrated in the other things that you do. So I think you make it. Point number 17 on your annual assessment, make it something that, you put on your roadmap as a footnote and say, and let's do some more of this. I think you want to work it, maybe put it into your policy and say that, or maybe put it into the feedback surveys that you do or whatever it is, figure out how you can append this to something that you're already doing to help change your mindset around that. Because that's how things actually change. They're adopted a little bit at a time until people are used to seeing that. And then they figure out how to move it forward. I think you got to not, you you have to defend against the risk that, you don't get started on this because it seems like something that's completely different. To your point, Tom, this is just a natural extension of what we've been doing. It's a little bit new, but it's, it's not like we're learning how to write software code. We're just looking at potential risks instead of things that already happened, which is really what we're doing. So we are
0: near the end of our time for this episode, but I wanted to end with the ethics first. And other than the fact that I didn't think of it and you guys did, I think it's great. That aside, had a great, great episode today on developing ROI, measuring your ROI and compliance that I hope everyone listening has had the opportunity to listen to. But could you tell us, do you have any hints of what we might see down the road in in a week or two, or are you just going to see where things go and go from there?
1: no we are really building out a ton of content and our when me and geo came up with the the ethics verse in this premise we were trying to do a couple of things one we were trying to be a place where people in the ethics and compliance community can connect and share tactics and techniques because we're all kind of fighting the same battle that was one and we wanted it to not be a thinly veiled sales presentation like so many of these webinars are which are to me highly obnoxious and yeah so I can go on, and on about that and then we also wanted it to be really valuable information for folks. So we wanted to get good thought leaders on we wanted to get people to come on with great ideas and we wanted to crowdsource from this special community that we're a part of We wanted to crowdsource ideas for the types of topics that they want to see. So some of the next few that we are looking at doing our EU whistleblower directive. This is the 200 level course. So we have a specialist that Mary Inman introduced us to who's going to be doing some deep dive on a lot of that nuance that a lot of ethics and compliance professionals who are running international operations are trying to navigate through that thicket of regulation across the EU. So we're going to do a deep dive on that. We have our good friend Christian Hunt coming on to talk some more about, we have a 100 level and a 200 level session about behavioral finance or about behavioral economics and how we can weaponize that to drive better behavioral change in our organization. Those are the next few that are coming up. We're trying to get Allison Taylor to come on and to have some kind of fun ESG talk because that is so top of mind for folks. And I think there's another one coming up, maybe about conflicts of interest. But anyways, each week, each Thursday at noon, we have folks coming on and we meet for an hour and we also try to make them fun. That's what's coming down. the. Well, Jensen,
0: this has been a great episode. I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to do this. And I can't see, I can't wait to see what next month brings us.
2: All right, man. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's been a blast, Tom. Thanks. Great job, Nick. You were really good on this one. All right.
0: This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Gallo Cast. I'm going to link to contact information for Nick and Geo Gallo in the show notes as well as Compliance Line. If you need hotline services or other compliance services, I hope you will check out Compliance Line as they have a full suite of services. Also, check out the Ethics Verse on Compliance Line, which appears each Thursday with a new topic hosted by Matt Kelly and Nick and Gio Gallo. I hope you plan to join us next month for another episode of the GalloCast, and I hope you enjoyed this as much as Nick, Gio, and I had recording it and bringing it to you. The GalloCast is a production of the award-winning Compliance Podcast Network.